The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So I'm a little bit touched or find a wonderful resonance that last Sunday I gave a talk about Martin Luther King Jr. And uh, this day I'll talk about um, Thich Nhat Hanh. And they knew each other and they influenced each other. Uh, <clears throat> Martin Luther King was influenced by Thich Nhat Hanh to be opposed to the Vietnam War a monumental change in the direction of his work that he did, one that was controversial and in retrospect was probably oh, a wonderful and important change. And uh, in return, uh, uh, partly Martin Luther King, but the whole uh, civil rights movement in the United States had a big impact on Thich Nhat Hanh. And uh, he learned about it while he was staying here in this country in the Early, very early 1960s, and when he went back to Vietnam, uh, it inspired him to do this, the kind of service work and uh, anti-war work and, and that uh, that he dedicated himself to until he uh, uh, was exiled by the government. So um, <clears throat> Thich Nhat Hanh was a, one of the great teachers of the 20th century and had a huge influence on Western Buddhism. As I said, he was exiled, I think around 1964 or so, from Vietnam. And uh, then he settled in France and um, and from there started slowly beginning to teach more and more. And I became aware of him in the early 1980s. And uh, he was... Uh, I was uh, living at the San Francisco Zen Center, and um, and he uh, uh, he was contacted to support uh, when the Zen Center went through a tremendous turmoil around the ethical challenges of its abbot at the time. And he try he was a consultant for both the abbot and for the Zen Center as a whole. And um, and then he came to Zen Center, and uh, he had a big impact on the students at Zen Center, and for a variety of reasons. One was that um, uh, he included children, and he would give a Dharma talk, and he'd have the children come and sit up front, and he would talk to them, and then they would leave, and he'd give a talk for the adults. And while this seems like a small thing, in the kind of a little bit more austere or strict uh, model of uh, Japanese Zen that San Francisco Zen Center inherited, uh, it uh, that was not done, that kind of blending. And so it kind of broke the mold and opened up to a whole different kind of softness and, and kindness. Uh, he also gave a, a lot of emphasis on um, uh, lay practitioners. And of course, San Francisco Zen Center had a lot of lay practitioners, but Thich Nhat Hanh kind of elevated the importance of lay practice and also elevated the importance of lay teachers. Uh, I don't think San Francisco Zen Center had really any recognition of lay teachers at that time. And a number of the senior lay practitioners started uh, spending time with Thich Nhat Hanh, some going to France to be with him. 
and uh, then became, um, were transmitted, were authorized to be teachers in Thich Nhat Hanh's lineage. And this idea that a lay person could be, um, become a, a Buddhist teacher was also kind of novel and kind of opened up the field and appreciation for lay people uh, in, the, in the scene. Uh, he also had a gentleness and a dedication to nonviolence and kindness and softness and to joy and happiness that also was not quite uh, the ethos of San Francisco Zen Center. He came and gave us meditation instructions that included using phrases, which was very different from the more silent, just sitting practice that we did. And some of the phrases were things like, um, uh, breathing in, I calm my body. Breathing out, I smile. Uh, Stepping, I experience joy. Uh, Stepping, I feel home. And so he had all these kind of phrases that would incorporate into the meditation practice. And I remember using them uh, back then and uh, feeling all this joy and delight that that was, and to feel that this was permitted and part of the practice was somewhat novel in the mid-1980s for me and for some of the other Zen students at the time. So he had a big influence on the local uh, Buddhist communities that I was part of, but he did that for much of the world. And he traveled around the world and taught all over. And um, the, uh, after meeting Thich Nhat Hanh at the San Francisco Zen Center, the next time I met, met him was... Um, uh, I, uh, coincidentally, I flew into, I went back to Norway to visit my relatives. And when I arrived at the, the airport, there are all these people, um, clearly Buddhists, waiting for something special to happen. And my relatives who were waiting for me, uh, were, I was a Zen priest by then, was a little bit wondering, what's going on here? Are they waiting for Gil? But when I came out of the, into the arrival section, I, I, I had no importance for the people who were waiting uh, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh was flying, flew in on the very next plane. So they were there waiting for him. <clears throat> so knowing that Thich Nhat Hanh was going to be there, I spent the weekend with him uh, in, a, in, a, in a school classroom where he was teaching a relatively small group of people. And that was really special to spend this time with him. The, um, Thich Nhat Hanh uh, was a man of, I think, tremendous emotional depth, emotional capacity. He suffered a lot, and uh, and he openly talked about it, his suffering, and he wrote poems about it. He was very creative. He was a poet. He was a storyteller. Um, he was um, uh, he had a rich imagination, a rich use of language, very evocative. He was innovative. Uh, he was probably one of the more innovative uh, teachers, especially monastic teachers of the 20th century. Uh, pushing the edge and changing things and doing innovative things with Buddhism itself. It's a fa- famous idea of him is that he was one of the first Buddhist monks to ride a bicycle. And uh, maybe it seems like a small thing, but this was kind of really pushing the boundaries into the modern world. He started his own monastic order, that uh, the Order of Interbeing in Vietnam in the 1960s because he saw a need to kind of emphasize a whole different ethos, a whole different approach to Buddhism. Um, <clears throat> he coined important terms. He coined the term engaged Buddhism, <clears throat> which uh, involved Buddhism that was actively engaged in the social welfare of the world, and, and uh, which he was, um, t- 
to the degree to to endanger to uh, at the risk of his own life. In fact, some of his uh, f- colleagues that worked with him uh, lost their lives during the Vietnam War in their <clears throat> nonviolent work, and that was misunderstood by both sides of the Vietnam War because he they, he wasn't supporting one side against the other. He was seen as belonging to the other. And so both sides saw him that way. So he was kind of in a risky middle. But he was dedicated to not having enemies, to working for nonviolence, to working for ending the war. <clears throat> they made him unpopular. So eventually he became, uh, you know, exiled. But, uh, you know, this was part of parcel of his engaged Buddhism, this work in the world. And uh, maybe it's not a coincidence that his, <clears throat> his name, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, the tick part means that uh, he's a <clears throat> kind of means he's a, he's a child of the Buddha. He's in the clan of the Buddha, and uh, in the family in the Buddha family. Uh, and many monks in Thailand are called tick because of that. Once you ordain, you join the you're a child of the Buddha kind of. <clears throat> and an the tick not not means one, and han means action. So. Uh, he was a man of action to engage Buddhism. Tremendous action. And what the one refers to, I don't know, it's, it's a lot of symbolic value, what one is. And, but one thing it meant was that when I knew him, and I think other people, the tremendous uh, presence he had to just do the thing he was doing, whatever action he was doing, that's what he did. If he was drinking tea, it was just drinking tea. If he was walking, just walking and to be in his presence <clears throat> was, <clears throat> excuse me for a moment. To be in his presence was to kind of slow down. And, um, and he kind of like brought you into the present because he was so present. And there was a kind of commanding, his gentleness and his softness and his slowness was kind of commanding to everyone slow down. And, and, um, and so, you know, it wasn't like fast action. It wasn't like he was in a hurry for anything. No hurry whatsoever. One action. He just do one thing at a time. But in that one thing at a time, slowly, calmly, uh, he was able to do a phenomenal amount of things, phenomenal amount of teaching, action, support, innovation. Started monasteries, or certainly he got lots of help at some point. But in the beginning, you know, him and his colleagues were able to really foster a phenomenal movement of uh, a Buddhist movement, one of the great movements of the modern world. And um, <clears throat> and he had a tremendous amount of wonderful teachings that he offered. We get a sense of his emotional depth and the degree to which he suffered, especially during the time of the Vietnam War, from some of the poetry he wrote at that time. And so I would like to read some of that. And this uh, poem is titled, For Warmth. I hold my face in my two hands. No, I am not crying. I hold my face in my two hands to keep the loneliness warm. Two hands protecting, two hands nourishing, two hands preventing my soul from leaving me in anger. 
And he talks about, uh, you know, uh, much of what he had to deal with and work with in, uh, during the Vietnam War and later, the things that people did to each other uh, left him angry. And, um, but he, he practiced with it. And here's an example of how he practiced with it. Um, and uh, this idea of holding his face with his two hands, the cupped hands over the face, holding his loneliness, holding his anger, I think is a very tender and way of being mindful and present. Um, <clears throat> some of his uh, uh, fellow monks, some of the, some of them he knew. Uh, I don't know if he knew all of them, but he, uh, um, uh, were the uh, ones who uh, uh, burnt themselves in protest to the war. They sat in the streets and poured gasoline over themselves. And there's photographs, probably most of you have seen them, of these monks sitting there in meditation posture, um, calmly sitting and meditating with the uh, engulfed in fire as they're burning uh, until they died. And um, so here's one poem. The fire that burns in you burns my flesh with such pain that all my tears are not enough to cool your sacred soul. Deeply wounded, I remain here, keeping your hopes and promises for the young. I will not betray you. Are you listening? I remain here because your very heart is now my heart. So he had... It, these things pained him tremendously, the loss, the pain, the suffering. This is a man who suffered a lot, but he was not afraid to suffer. Uh, he was not crippled by a suffering. He practiced with it. He turned it around. He composted it. He dedicated it uh, to a different way of living. Here's another um, poem. And um, this was printed in 1966 for the Fellowship of Reconciliation as a Christmas card. Life has left her footprints on my forehead, but I have become a child again this morning. The smile seen through leaves and flowers is back to smooth away the wrinkles. As the rains wipe away footprints on the beach, again, a cycle of birth and death begins. I walk on thorns, but firmly as among flowers. I keep my head high. Rhymes bloom among the sounds of bombs and mortars. The tears I shed yesterday have become rain. I feel calm hearing it sound on the thatched roof. Childhood, my birthland, is calling me, and the rains melt my despair. I am still here alive, able to smile quietly. O sweet fruit brought forth by the tree of suffering, carrying the dead body of my brother, I go across the rice fields in the darkness. Earth will keep you tight within her arms, my dear 
so that tomorrow you will be reborn as flowers. Those flowers smiling quietly in the morning field. This moment, you weep no more, my dear. We have gone through too deep a night. This morning, I kneel down on the grass. When I notice your presence, flowers that carry the marvelous smile of ineffability speak to me in silence. The message, the message of love and understanding has indeed come to us. So I think it's a powerful poem to describe his own despair, his own suffering and the depth of it. And probably it's true that he carried his dead colleague, fellow monk, to be buried. Uh, the mortars and bombs that uh, were blowing up around him. And he was, the, he was on the, you know, he was there working at the, not at the, exactly at the forefront of the war, but right there where it was happening around him. And then to end with a message of love. Uh, what a powerful thing to do. And then he, um, you know, and then he, he offered, would come to, come to us, to here in the West, and he would wa- do walking meditation with us. He would do tea meditation with us. And this, you know, to walk with Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, outdoors, on the ground, slowly, mindfully, was quite a powerful experience. Here's a poem called The Walking Meditation. Take my hand, we will walk. We will only walk. We will enjoy our walk without thinking of arriving anywhere. Walk peacefully, walk happily. Our walk is a peace walk. Our walk is a happiness walk. Then we learn that there is no peace walk, that peace is the walk, that there is no happiness walk, that happiness is the walk. We walk for ourselves, we walk for everyone, always, hand in hand. Walk and touch peace every moment. Walk and touch happiness every moment. Each step brings a fresh breeze. Each step makes a flower bloom under our feet. Kiss the earth with your feet. Print on earth your love and happiness. Earth will be safe when we feel in us enough safety. When we feel in us enough safety. So to go from the suffering of Vietnam in the first poems and his dedication to be in the present moment and keep looking, keeping present and seeing what is here and to be fully with his suffering then fully with the flowers the next day and uh, to be fully with the suffering and ready to smile soon thereafter, to be fully present for this and, uh, and here we are walking and the earth will be safe when we feel in us enough safety what does it take to feel have safety within us? Is that where safety is to be found? Is the earth safe when we find in safety in us? I think he would say yes to all those questions. 
that um, and so he dedicated himself to teaching people the what he called the miracle of mindfulness to show up for this moment right here but it wasn't just to show up for it he emphasized penetrating through to the depth of it um, seeing through to some kind of to the ultimate that was there and um, and so what I read the poem I read the gatha I read um, beginning of the meditation I'll read it again the, the Chan Zen tradition that he was part of um, classically they used a lot of gathas the four line verses and um, when I was in Japan we were given verses to recite when we washed our hands when we used the toilet and do all kinds of ordinary things so he had one here. I have arrived. I am, I am home. So this again, this emphasis of coming home, but here finding it in the present moment. I have arrived. I am home. In the here, in the now. I am solid. I am free. In the ultimate, I dwell. Here's another poem with his anger. Angry in the ultimate dimension, I close my eyes and look deeply. 300 years from now, where will you be and where shall I be? Speaking to his anger. anger. In 300 years from now, where will you be and where shall I be? Angry in the ultimate dimension, then he wrote, when we are angry, what do we usually do? We shout, scream, and try to blame someone else for our problems. But looking at anger with the eyes of impermanence, we can stop and breathe. Angry at each other in the ultimate dimension, we close our eyes and look deeply. We try to see 300 years into the future. What will you be like? What will I be like? Where will you be? Where will I be? We need only to breathe in and out, look at our future and at the other person's future. We don't need to look as far as 300 years. It could be 50 or 60 years from now when we have both passed away. And um, so he kept emphasizing looking deeply, but for him looking deeply in, with impermanence was also uh, kind of opened this rich, multi-dimensional world that also used the imagination, imagining 300 years in the future. Um, and he would look at the famous exercise he gave was, was to look at a piece of paper and basically imagine that if you see deeply with your if you look see deeply with your imagination, you see more than just a paper. Uh, you see the tree that grew, that became the paper. You see the, the, the rain that nur, nur, and the soil that nourished the tree to grow. You saw the sun that shone its sunlight on it that allowed the tree to grow. You see the person who cut the tree down, the, the people who converted the paper, the people who brought the paper to the store, the storekeeper who sold it to you. And you see this rich world that included the ecology that we're in, included the social world we live in, and to see all of it together in, in some big way, for him, was part of uh, waking up to this world. 
And it's partly maybe why he had such a strong social message um, that uh, he saw us living in this, what he called, interbeing world, an interdependent world where we, our, our own being was no separate than the being of everyone else. We inter-are. Um, is, um, the, we inter-are. We, we exist because someone else exists. Um, here he wrote a poem... The titled Interrelationship. You are me and I am you. Isn't it obvious that we inter-are? You cultivate the flower in yourself so that I will be beautiful. I transform the garbage in myself so that you will not suffer. I support you, you support me. I am in this world to offer you peace. You are this. You are in this world uh, to being to bring me joy. So inter are inter being, uh, and uh, so he saw this at a social level, at an environmental level, all kinds of levels. So he kept emphasizing, uh, you know, this level in which we inter are. And um, powerful teachings for him. The um, last week I read uh, a passage by Martin Luther King where he said that God is love. So I don't know if uh, what degree that influenced Thich Nhat Hanh, um, but he had this wonderful uh, book. I mean, it's a more he's a anthology of different people writing about this. But just a title was inspiring for me, very meaningful when I first came out. The title is For a Future to be Possible. Commentaries on the Five Wonderful Precepts. So the five precepts that we have, he called wonderful precepts. He always would put these uh, adjectives in front of things and, you know, that kind of superlatives about the wonderful and wondrous and things like that. And um, so he's talking about the five ethical precepts. And, um, but for a future to be possible. And uh, I think it was a powerful idea. We know, isn't future going to come? Futures will always come, but will we be there as a human race for the futures? What kind of future will we have? And so, um, and so ethics is part of that. And, um, um, but he wrote... Um, the five wonderful precepts are love itself. To love is to understand, protect, and bring well-being to the object of our love. The practice of the precepts accomplishes this. We protect ourselves and we protect others. I am confident that our children and their children will have an even better understanding of the five precepts and will obtain even deeper peace and joy. This hopeful message. So he was looking into the future, he was looking into the past, he was looking at this wide imagination, creative imagination throughout the world, and he was saying, just show up here. When you walk, just walk, only walk. And, um, you know, really drink your tea and just drink your tea. So 
This he had this capacity he had to switch orientations, to understand and to grow and develop and open up and focus and be here and work through his sorrow and his grief and find happiness and joy was phenomenal. The humanity of this man and to bring so much humanity into his Buddhism, his Buddhist teachings was kind of exceptional, I think, for any Buddhist teacher. And um, So he died, I think, on Thursday. We say he died. And I suspect if he said that for himself, I died, he would have followed it up by, uh, there is no death. And uh, he talked about that sometimes, there is no death. But this idea of no death, no birth and no death, um, that's, to be, that's not to be believed or understood logically, but it's to be discovered in really being present just here and now, free of our abstract ideas or proliferations, free of our stories, free of our concepts, and there's something about just being present in the purity, the simplicity of presence that shows a deathless realm, shows a birthless realm, shows some aspect of attention, of awareness that is free of concepts and ideas of past and future, free of um, anything but just here. And to, and to find his freedom and peace and to feel at home and to recognize this is the ultimate, this is profound. Um, this is a profundity which is always here. It's a dimension of that, uh, in a certain kind of way, doesn't depend on our concepts and on ideas and our thoughts. In a sense, doesn't depend on our existence. And, um, but it's the kind of a true home. Um, and so in it, there's no birth and death. There's just being present. So to be fully present the moment of your death for that moment is to be in a timeless, deathless moment. Um, and then afterwards, well, it continues to be the same timeless moment. And something, there's freedom there. That's the avenue for love, for this richness that he was so much about, was inc- inclusive of all this. So um, he, as a kind of final tribute to him, and maybe in a way that he would appreciate, to quote him again, he was a teacher, and he spent tremendous amount of time teaching. And the, the testimony of all his teaching is all the books that the, those produced, something like uh, 100 books in English. But he wrote, or said, teaching is not done by talking alone. It is done by how you live your life. My life is my teaching. My life is my message. So, um, my life is my message. And um, that message continues. He's still alive. And um, 
his example lives in us, in our memories, and those of us he touched, and those of us who learn about him. And, uh, and it's a teaching that points back to ourselves. And imagine, how would you live if your life was the message, if your life was your teaching? And then maybe we would realize our true nature in the way that Thich Nhat Hanh refers to such language. He said, our true nature is the nature of no birth and no death. Only when we touch our true nature can we transcend the fear of not existing, the fear of annihilation. So, I'm inspired by Thich Nhat Hanh. I'm saddened by his passing. I'm inspired by his passing because his passing is just as much his message. And uh, to not see his passing as part of his teachings, part of his message, is to miss his teachings, miss who he, what, what he was about. And so to hold both, to hold this wide range of feelings we have, and not to get caught in the feelings and stuck in them, but see them too as part of this interbeing that is not ours alone. And that uh, which by seeing and with the eyes of impermanence, seeing with depth, we find our freedom and perhaps our smile in the midst of our sadness. May it be that Thich Nhat Hanh's life grows the smiles that can exist in this world, the smiles of the children. May the children smile a lot, and may we support that. The smiles of our elders. May our lives be one that brings smiles to them so they experience smiles before they die. Their smiles grow. Smiles for our neighbors. Smile for our colleagues. Smiles for our family, our friends. May we live a life that uh, spreads smiles throughout the world, smiles that can help us to hold kindly, lovingly, compassionately the sorrows of this world as well. May the memory of Thich Nhat Hanh support us, guide us, inspire us, and continue to to uh, benefit this world for a long time. Thank you all.